Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. As we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And my goal this morning is to cover verses 14 through 22. And the title of the message this morning is A Passionate Letter to a Lukewarm Church. A Passionate Letter to a Lukewarm Church. This past Friday, uh, two days ago, marked the 38-year anniversary of the moment when I surrendered my life to the Lord at the age of 18. On that occasion of surrender, I honestly thought I was pretty much done with sin and that I would never sin again. My heart was just exploding with love for Jesus. But since that time, there have been many ups and downs spiritually. My fervor for Christ has sometimes waxed and other times waned. And the passage that we're going to be looking at today has often spoken to me in deeply personal ways during my waning moments, ways that have given me hope and taken me deeper into the love of Christ. The passage we're going to be looking at today is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. There have been times in my life when I was so sure that I was so disgusting to Jesus that he was fed up with dealing with me. And yet this passage has often given me the glimpse of Jesus that I needed at just the right time. And I pray that it will do the same for you today. This letter that we're going to be studying today is the last of the letters that Jesus writes to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And it is a letter that is rich in contrasts. The Laodicean church that Jesus addresses was lukewarm toward Jesus, yet Jesus is anything but lukewarm toward them. This letter contains the strongest expression of disgust from Jesus toward his readers, yet this letter also contains the most intimate promise from Jesus found anywhere in all of Revelation 2 and 3. And all of this is in an effort to lure this church away from its lukewarm condition and into a state of fervent zeal for Christ. What does it mean to be lukewarm? If you're looking on that PDF that has the worship lyrics, um, there's the sermon notes there at the bottom of that document that you can access on your smartphone. And... With those sermon notes is a definition of lukewarmness. Before we get into our text for today, let me just define lukewarmness for you. It is a state of satisfied spiritual indifference induced by a forgetfulness of the glory of Christ, of one's desperate need for Him, and of the ultimate good that can only be obtained through personal communion with him. That is essentially what lukewarmness is. 
Such a state is often fed by the experience of material prosperity, which deceives us into thinking that before God, we are spiritually what we are materially. We become financially self-sufficient, and then we act like somehow that means that we're spiritually self-sufficient also. And because we don't need Christ too much, an indifference to the things of Christ begins to set in, wherein we don't love Christ too much, and neither do we hate sin very much anymore either. We sacrifice little for Christ because we've come to love our comfort zone more than we love Christ. And so we risk nothing for Him in order to avoid ever being in a situation in which we might actually be too dependent upon Him. We forget how desperately we need Christ and thus we cease to daily seek for and obtain from Christ those things that we need. We become neglectful in our practice of spiritual disciplines And the result is that we walk around spiritually impoverished, yet in our blindness we think that we're actually doing well spiritually, or at least well enough. Most people look at us and think we're good Christians, yet the truth is that Christ has been pushed to the periphery of our lives and no longer has the central place in our hearts that He deserves. This is the way things were in the Laodicean church, as we're going to see. The church to whom Jesus speaks in our passage today. And we're going to, as we work through this text, get to watch our beautiful Savior in action as He pursues this lukewarm church and seeks to persuade them away from their lukewarmness and into a passionate zeal for Him. And the way we'll break down our study of this text is we'll observe seven acts of Jesus designed to persuade a lukewarm church to become fervently zealous for Him. Seven acts of Jesus designed to persuade a lukewarm church to become fervently zealous for Him. And the first of these acts is found in verse 14, and that is that Jesus presents Himself to them as the ultimately reliable witness and creator. He presents himself to them as the ultimately reliable witness and creator. Observe how Jesus presents himself to the Laodiceans. In verse 14, he says, To the angel, or to the messenger, or to the pastor of the church in Laodicea, write the Amen, the faithful and true witness, The beginning of the creation of God says this. Jesus is very intentional about everything that he says here. And there are reasons that he introduces himself to the Laodicean church in these ways. First of all, he presents himself to them as the Amen. And the Greek word translated Amen is the word Amen. Or Amen, if you want to pronounce it properly. That Jesus would call himself the Amen or the Amen indicates that everything that Jesus is, everything that he says, is absolute truth that you can rightly say Amen to. 
In the gospel accounts, Jesus himself begins some of his statements by saying, Amen, I say to you, truly I say to you. He begins other statements by saying, truly, truly I say to you, which literally is, Amen, Amen, I say to you. And here he says that he himself is the Amen, the Amen. Jesus also describes himself in this verse as the faithful and true witness. And indeed, he was the faithful and true witness during his earthly ministry, bearing faithful witness in everything that he ever said. And he will be just as faithful and truthful in every word of testimony that he's about to speak to these Laodiceans. In the coming verses, Jesus is going to critique the Laodiceans, in ways that they're instantly going to feel inclined to disagree with. In verse 15, Jesus will say to them, I know. And in verse 17, he will say to the Laodiceans, you do not know. He's going to quote what he hears them saying as they testify concerning themselves and their condition, and then he's going to testify regarding them and say the exact opposite of what they're saying about themselves. And he wants them to be ready to listen to him and to agree with him rather than themselves. Because after all, he is the amen and they're not. He is the faithful and true witness and they are not. Jesus also presents himself here in verse 14 as the beginning of the creation of God. This does not mean that Christ is the first thing that God created. It means that he's the beginner of creation, the beginning one of creation, or the originator of creation, the ultimate agent through whom God created all that is. John himself teaches this in John 1.3 when he says, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. This truth about Christ as the beginning one of all creation is an important truth about Jesus that the Laodiceans need to be reminded of. The city of Laodicea was situated in a fertile valley which provided its inhabitants with some of the most luscious resources in God's creation. It was a dream place to live. And this is part of what made the Laodiceans so wealthy and so financially independent. Jesus wants these Laodiceans to know that all the good that they enjoy on God's good earth is from the hand of Jesus in the first place, who is the originator of the creation of God. Rather than allowing such material, physical blessings to make them less dependent upon Christ, these Laodiceans should be moved by these material blessings to be all the more devoted to Christ and dependent upon Him, knowing that even their earthly blessings come from Him and should redound to His glory as the originator of all such blessings, both spiritual and physical after presenting himself to the Laodiceans in these ways that we've just seen in verse 14, 
Jesus then speaks frankly to them as the faithful and the true witness. This brings us to the next act of Jesus designed to persuade a lukewarm church to become fervently zealous for Him. Number two, He tells them His reaction to their lukewarmness. He tells them His reaction to their lukewarmness. Listen to what He says to them in verse 15. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. The deeds that Jesus mentions here would include their good deeds and their bad deeds. And Jesus is saying he knows all that they are doing and he knows the true quality of every deed that they do. As for their spiritual state, Jesus says you are neither cold nor hot. The Greek word translated hot is the word zestos from which we get our English word zest. This word literally means to boil. Here in Revelation 3.15, the word used here would have the idea of boiling with fervency for Jesus or being on fire for Him and His cause. And if that is the meaning of hot, and most commentators agree that it is, then we're left with the question, what is the meaning of cold This is where commentators have varying answers. But however we answer this question, there are three things, I think, that may serve to limit the options available to us in determining what Jesus means by cold. First of all, whatever cold means, it means the opposite of being hot, right? Or it means the opposite of being boiling for Christ, Secondly, whatever cold means, it is something that Jesus seems to genuinely wish that the Laodiceans were, right? According to the text, he says in verse 15, I wish that you were either cold or hot. If we take that at face value, he seems to wish for this state of coldness and hotness. Thirdly, whatever cold means, it seems to be a condition that doesn't make Jesus want to spew somebody out of his mouth. We will see this in verse 16. Think about it. If we use Jesus' words as a guide, we would conclude that lukewarmness is evidently the only condition that would cause Jesus to spit somebody out of his mouth. Someone who is hot and someone who is cold would not be spit out of his mouth. So, given these three considerations, I would suggest that being hot and cold are both good things. And this should not surprise us. Think about it this way. A person who pleases God is a person who is hotly for Jesus and coldly against anything contrary to Jesus. A righteous person is hotly for righteousness and is coldly against unrighteousness. A person who rightly pursues Jesus is not lukewarm in his pursuit of Jesus. He engages in the hot pursuit of Jesus and he gives a cold shoulder 
to anything that is contrary to him. The pursuer of Jesus is both hot and cold, depending on the vantage point that we are looking at him or her. Now, commentators have other ideas about what Jesus may mean by cold, and I will leave it to you to study all of that out. But however one might understand the meaning of cold, the text is clear that Jesus doesn't like the fact that the Laodiceans are neither hot nor cold, and instead lukewarm. Listen to what he says in verse 16. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is a jarring statement from Jesus. He's telling the Laodiceans the kind of reaction that their lukewarmness is provoking in him. It produces in him a response of retching and heaving. Their lukewarmness makes Jesus want to throw up, to throw them up. At the same time, this is a most merciful statement by Jesus that often gets missed by the reader of this passage. In fact, imagine that we're playing Bible trivia this morning and I ask you the question, which church in Asia Minor did Jesus spit out of his mouth? Which church in Asia Minor did Jesus spit out of his mouth? What would be the expected answer to that question? The Laodicean church. But this answer would be categorically wrong. Because in this passage, Jesus is not spitting this church out of his mouth. In fact, Jesus' actual language in this verse makes it clear that he has not yet spit them out of his mouth. Actually, there's an extra verb in the Greek text of this statement that does not always get translated in our English translations, but it is captured in the New International Version. Literally, the Greek text reads exactly as the NIV translates it, translating Jesus as saying, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I am about to spit you out of my mouth, which means, guys, that Jesus has not yet spit them out of his mouth. He's about to do so at some point in the near future, and that's why he's approaching them in this moment he writes this letter to them so that they can hear his heart and repent and avoid the fate of being spit out of his mouth which has not happened yet having said that let's not kid ourselves jesus words here are jarring they're stunning these are the last words that you would ever want to hear from jesus when he's talking to you. And his words reveal to us that the last thing that you ever want to be toward Jesus is lukewarm. Even those who respond to Jesus with outright hostility at least pay Jesus the compliment of recognizing that he's worthy of a passionate response. But a lukewarm response, that's the worst and the most insulting way that you could ever respond to Jesus 
And that's where the Laodiceans are at this time. But what was the cause of their lukewarmness? Where did their lukewarmness come from? We actually find the essence of their lukewarmness in the first part of the next verse. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, because, here's why you're lukewarm and why I want to spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. That right there is their lukewarmness verbalized their lukewarmness put into words perhaps these laodiceans were actually speaking these exact words and jesus heard them talk this way or maybe more likely these laodiceans were not saying these exact words out loud but they were simply communicating this perspective through their actions either way in delivering this boast through their words And through their actions, the Laodiceans are probably not merely boasting about their physical and material wealth. Most likely, they had interpreted their material wealth as a blessing from God, which it was, but then they allowed it to deceive them regarding their spiritual state. As one writer says, it is likely that they carried the pride of their material wealth into their spiritual life and assumed that they were doing fine both materially and spiritually. And given this feeling of being rich and well provided for, the Laodiceans felt that they were in need of nothing materially and spiritually. Now, we actually know from history that this kind of attitude is something that the Laodiceans were known for. When an earthquake hit Asia Minor in A.D. 60, it destroyed many cities in this area, including the city of Laodicea, causing many cities in Asia Minor to need financial aid from the Roman government to be rebuilt, but not the Laodiceans. They refused any government help. Speaking on behalf of the Roman government, the Roman historian Tacitus said this, and I quote, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us, unquote. And that was the Laodicean way. And it looks like this very mindset had crept into the church of Laodicea as well because this is exactly how the members of the Laodicean church were thinking about themselves both materially and spiritually. They would live the Christian life and do ministry for God even in the strength of their own resources with no help, no sense of desperate need for empowerment or provision from Christ. So it's no wonder that they were lukewarm toward Christ. It's easy to be lukewarm toward someone whom you really don't need very much at all, right? And the same thing may be true of you and me today. If you go day after day 
without feeling your desperate need to pray and spend time reading God's word? If you go day after day without feeling your need to fellowship with God's people, then you are de facto saying by your actions, I am rich enough. I am wealthy enough with my own resources and with my own wisdom such that I see no need to desperately seek such things from Christ. You may never say those words out loud, but this is what Christ hears you saying as he watches your life. And if this is your attitude then you will certainly be lukewarm in your pursuit of Christ, just like the Laodiceans had become. One thing that you have to hand to these Laodiceans is that they had a high self-esteem. In fact, they probably thought that they were the last of the seven churches because Jesus was saving the best for last. But Jesus shatters their self-estimation as he continues in verse 17. And this brings us to the third act of Jesus designed to persuade a lukewarm church to become fervently zealous for him. Number three, he tells them about their destitute condition and how to address it through him. He tells them about their destitute condition and how to address it through him. In verse 17, he speaks to them and he says, You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is a terrible indictment. It's one thing to be all of these things he just listed, It's another thing to be all of these things while at the same time thinking you're rich and you are in need of nothing. This is an embarrassingly awful thing to be called out on by Jesus. The word wretched here speaks of someone in the direst of straits from which they must be delivered. The word miserable translates the Greek word that speaks of the destitute condition of a beggar who has to beg for even basic necessities. Jesus also says that they are poor, that they're blind, and that they're naked, all the while thinking and professing themselves to be otherwise. They could not have been more self-deceived. However lukewarm the Laodiceans may have been prior to this moment, These words from Jesus would have aroused in them a deep alarm and embarrassment that is much needed being called out by Jesus like this in front of the other six churches of Asia Minor. If these Laodiceans really saw how destitute their condition really was and how needy they were, they would not be lukewarm about seeking to remedy their condition which is why Jesus immediately gives them the counsel that he gives to them in verse 18, so that they might engage now in the hot pursuit of rectifying their destitute and naked condition. Look at what he says to them in verse 18. I advise you, let me give you some advice, Jesus says. I advise you to buy 
from me. You might want to underline those words, from me. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. It's hard to know precisely what Jesus means by each of these symbols, but what is clear is that Jesus has everything they need to rectify everything that is wrong with their present condition. He has the finest commodities they need to be spiritually wealthy. He has what they need to be clothed in the finest of the clothing of holiness that covers the shame of their spiritual nakedness. And he has what they need to bring healing to their spiritual eyes so that they can then begin to see him as they ought to see him and see their condition as they ought to see it and thus see their need of him as they ought to see it. And yet, oddly, if you look at the text carefully, Jesus does not tell them merely to receive these things or to obtain these things from him. Literally, in the Greek, he tells them to purchase these things, to buy these things from him. And that's surprising, right? Why would Jesus tell these Laodiceans that they are destitute and poor, and then tell them to purchase from him what he just said they cannot afford. Would you ever go up to a homeless beggar who has nothing, who has no money, and hold out food for him and tell him that he has to purchase that food from you? None of us would do that. I think Jesus is speaking this way because he's wanting the Laodiceans, to see their spiritual poverty. He's wanting them to feel the impossibility of this counsel from Him and then to fall on their faces before Him and say, we are wretched, we are miserable and poor and blind and naked and you have the gold and the clothing and the ISAV that we need and that we can only get from you but we are so poor that we don't even have the resources to acquire or to purchase these things from you in the strength of our own resources. I think Jesus is telling them to purchase these things from him as a way of reminding them that these gifts that he's offering to them are indeed very costly. They require purchase, a purchase that he himself has made through his blood shed at the cross. The Laodiceans purchased such things for themselves from Jesus by obtaining them on the credit of Jesus and through his shed blood at the cross. But, make no mistake, buying such things from Jesus in this way will cost the Laodiceans heavily, it will cost them their pride that they must be willing to part with. But if they are willing to surrender their pride and purchase these things 
from Jesus on the credit of Jesus, then they can have these blessings from Jesus and no longer be poor and blind and naked as they are now. I think Jesus' counsel would already have brought these Laodiceans a long way toward solving their lukewarmness problem. There's no way, guys, that someone can feel alarmed by their desperate condition and then be lukewarm toward the one who has what they need and who seems happy to provide it for them. There's no way a person can obtain what they need from Jesus to rectify their desperate condition and then be lukewarm toward Jesus after receiving that. He who is forgiven much loves much. He who is helped much by Jesus loves Jesus much. There's something more that these Laodiceans must do to overcome their lukewarmness. This leads us to the fourth act of Jesus designed to persuade a lukewarm church to become fervently zealous for Him. Number four, He calls them to be zealous and repent in light of His loving discipline. He calls them to be zealous and to repent in light of His loving discipline. Listen to what He says to them in verse 19. Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. The Greek word translated love here is the word phileo, which speaks of the love of friendship and personal affection. It's an emotional word. And as Robert Thomas, the commentator, says, and I quote, the surprising choice of this emotional word comes as a touching and unexpected manifestation of love toward those who deserve it the least among the seven churches. Jesus is making it clear that even though they may be lukewarm toward him right now, he is not lukewarm in his affection for them. And he affirms to them that he loves them. But as wonderful as Jesus love is there is a corresponding burden that comes with being loved by him jesus says those whom i love i reprove and discipline our culture today relishes the thought of god being a god of love but they don't seem to realize the things that go with that love As Charles Spurgeon says, it is a very solemn thing to be dearly loved by God. It is a privilege to be coveted, but the man who is so honored occupies a position of great delicacy. The Lord thy God is a jealous God, and he is most jealous where he shows most love. Being loved by God is sobering and it puts upon us a weight that is almost too great to bear for the glory of it and what comes with it. And Jesus is manifesting this very sentiment here. He will reprove and discipline those he loves if they are lukewarm toward him. If he has set his love on them, he will not tolerate lukewarmness in them because they can't afford to be lukewarm 
toward him. Their need for him is too great. And so he won't let them get by with it. Keep in mind that what Jesus says here is not simply a threat of something that is coming in the future. He uses the present tense here in verse 19, literally saying, those whom I presently love, I am presently reproving and presently disciplining. And Jesus speaks this way because he's reproving and disciplining the Laodiceans right now in this very letter that he is dictating to them. And he wants them to know that he's doing this because he loves them right now in this very moment. The word reprove means to verbally rebuke someone with the intent of showing them their fault. The word discipline speaks literally of child training, which involves the introduction of pain, the pain of discipline in moments when that pain is necessary. And Jesus is letting these Laodiceans know that what he has been saying so far is reproof. It is discipline. And if his words don't work in achieving their intended effect, then deeper reproof and discipline will be coming, all because he loves them. And yes, his words so far will hurt them, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Jesus is that faithful friend in this letter. Jesus continues in verse 19 and says, Therefore, be zealous and repent. This is actually the only time in all of the Bible that we ever see the command, be zealous. Jesus is commanding the Laodiceans to throw off their lukewarmness and to replace it with zeal. In fact, the word that is translated be zealous actually derives from the same root as the word translated hot that Jesus used earlier. Jesus is commanding the Laodiceans to hotly pursue getting their needs met by him and to be fervent and passionate for him. His command to repent is a call to change their minds and to see their lukewarmness and self-sufficiency as sin and to renounce their sin and then to set about to moving their lives in the opposite direction in pursuit of Jesus and acquiring from Him what they need. Putting the two commands side by side like this, Jesus is also saying, be zealous in repenting. But he's saying even more than that. He's saying, be zealous about coming to me and letting me be the meter of your needs. Think about this, guys. You and I here in this passage are commanded to be zealous, to be zealous for Christ, to realize our desperate condition apart from him, and then to zealously pursue obtaining from him what we need. And then to be zealous for him in all of our ways. We are not just commanded here to be for Jesus, but to be zealously for him. The way a hungry person is zealous for food. The way a naked person is zealous about finding some clothing. The way a thirsty person is zealous about getting a much needed drink of water to slake his thirst. The way an infant is zealous for his mother's milk. 
Are you zealous for Christ in this way every day? This is the essence of his command for all of us to be zealous and acquiring from him what we most need. We should be zealous in this way because if you are a Christian, Jesus is zealous for you. He came into this world and died on the cross so that he could be your savior and be the meter of your needs. And he does more than that too, just like he does for these Laodiceans. And we see this unfold actually in the next verse, which brings us to the next act of Jesus designed to persuade a lukewarm church to become fervently zealous for him. Number five, he promises his fellowship to anyone who will open the door to him. He promises his fellowship to anyone who will open the door to him. Look at what he says to them in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The words we see here, even just at the beginning of verse 20, are shocking in what they reveal about the Laodiceans, and amazing in what they reveal about the persistent love of Jesus. What Jesus says here in verse 20 reveals that evidently he's on the outside of the Laodicean church, but it also shows his amazing persistent grace in seeking to regain entrance. Jesus could have easily seen their lukewarmness and said, I'm done with you guys. But he doesn't do that because he knows they still need him desperately. So he's still standing at the door and he's still calling to them and he's knocking. As the glorified Lord, he also could have easily barged in and knocked down their door. He told the church of Philadelphia, we saw this two weeks ago, that he opens doors that no one can close. Yet here he is saying, behold, I stand at the door And knock, the glorified Lord Jesus is knocking at a door that we can open to him. And saying this, Jesus is giving the Laodiceans perspective on what he's been doing throughout these verses that we have seen and studied thus far. And all that he has been saying to them in this letter, he has been calling and knocking, fighting hard for this relationship But they must open the door to him. Jesus continues. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. The voice that they need to hear is the voice of Jesus speaking to them in this letter. And if any one of them hears his voice and opens the door to him, Jesus says, I will come in to him. And I will dine with him and he with me. Jesus promised here, I've looked at this passage for years. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture and I'm still trying to understand it. His promise is twofold. If someone opens the door to Jesus, Jesus gives a promise and says, I will come in to him. Jesus never refuses someone who opens their door to him. 
He never ever knocks on the door of someone's life and then gets them to finally open their door to Him. And then Jesus pokes His head inside that door of their life and looks around and says, Ooh, never mind. Never mind. Forget it. Now, he already knows what's on the other side of that door. All the mess and all the brokenness. And he promises here that it doesn't matter what you've done, how far you've strayed, if you open the door to him, he's coming in. He will always come into the life of anyone who opens their door to him. And that goes for every person gathered here today. And then... He promises that he will dine with that person and let that person dine with him. In ancient times, dining together was one of the ultimate signs of trust and friendship. And Jesus could not be more friendly in his promise here. He's promising us and these Laodiceans that if we open our door to him, he will come in to us and dine together with us as friend with friend. And by the way, Jesus isn't knocking on the door of your life because He wants you to open the door so you can provide Him a meal because He's the hungry one. He's not hungry so much for a meal that you provide. He shows up at your door and He calls and He knocks And he's standing there waiting with a wagon load, with a whole catering truck of all the food that you could ever want. So that if you open the door, he can come in and bring all of that with him. Set the table and then feast together with you that you might enjoy that meal in companionship with him. Think about it, guys. When you feast on God's Word, Jesus is feasting on those very words with you. When you feast on God's presence in prayer, Jesus is in that very moment relishing the Father's presence together with you. He's dining with you. In fact, when you dine on such things you are merely joining Jesus in the things that He is feasting on all the time and He wants to share that feast with you so that you might feast together. And above all, He wants to give of Himself to you so that you can feast upon Him. Notice how individualized Jesus' language is here in verse 20. At first blush, and I think this is accurate, it seems that Jesus is on the outside of the Laodicean church knocking on the door of the church. But Jesus says, look at the text, if anyone, singular, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, singular, and dine with him, singular, and he, singular, with me. Clearly, whatever this invitation is, It's addressed to each individual in this congregation. And it is an invitation that any individual can respond to and experience the blessing of in the here and now. And so in what Jesus is saying here, He's knocking on the door of every one of your lives. 
And each of you have the opportunity to open that door to Him. All in all, there's just insane mercy here in Jesus' words to these Laodiceans. When Jesus is speaking to some of the other churches, as we have seen, Jesus warns them that He's going to come to them in discipline if they don't repent. He tells the Ephesian church that if they don't repent, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand out of its place. To another church, He promises that He is going to be coming to them bringing death and sickness. But there is no such threat from Jesus towards these Laodiceans who seem to deserve this kind of language the most. Here Jesus is saying to them, I have come to you and I am knocking on your door seeking entrance. If you let me in, I will come. I will come in and dine with you as friend with friend. This is a wonderfully merciful promise that Jesus gives to a church that probably should have expected threats of judgment. Jesus also delivers a wonderful promise to the one who overcomes the sin of lukewarmness. And this leads us to the sixth act of Jesus designed to persuade a lukewarm church to become fervently zealous for Him. Number six, He promises the overcomer a seat with Him on His kingdom throne. He promises the overcomer a seat with Him on His kingdom throne. Look at Jesus' promise. Verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with Me on My throne. Promises just don't get any better than this, guys. In other words, Jesus is saying the one who overcomes lukewarmness, the one who overcomes their nakedness and spiritual poverty and blindness by coming to me and acquiring from me what only I can give, I will grant to that person to sit down with me on my throne. Jesus here is not just promising such an overcomer a place in his kingdom. This is Jesus actually promising the overcomer that he can sit together with Jesus on his throne in his kingdom. If you wonder what Jesus means by his promise here, he explains. Look at verse 21 again. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We all know Jesus overcame the evil one at the cross and at the tomb. And as a result of his having overcome, the Father seated Jesus at his own right hand. And Jesus is saying here to us, what my Father did for me after I overcame, I would like to do that for you. If you overcome as I overcame, I will let you sit with me on my throne in the kingdom. This is the highest and the most exalted promise that Jesus could ever give to anyone. And I find it staggering that Jesus would even in this verse liken his own overcoming to any overcoming that we might do. We stand in awe of what Jesus did to overcome Satan and the world at the cross. That's a totally different category of overcoming. But then Jesus, this overcomer, 
turns to us and says, if you overcome as I did, then I will give you a similar reward that my Father gave me. And that's amazing to me. Evidently, in the mind of Jesus, you overcoming lukewarmness is an epic victory that makes headlines in heaven and renders you a fitting recipient of heaven's highest honor. Maybe through this message this morning, you sadly realize that you have allowed yourself to become lukewarm like the Laodiceans had allowed themselves to become. That's sad and that's unfortunate. But now that you realize that you are lukewarm, you have opportunity to do something really amazing. And that is to now overcome that lukewarmness through Jesus. Be zealous and repent and open your door to Jesus and begin dining with him. And if you do that, your victory will be great and your reward is going to be even greater. And you're going to bring so much joy to the heart of Jesus. But if you will overcome in this way, Jesus' use of the word overcome here tells you that you're going to have to have a warrior's mindset. You must make war. There will be fierce battles ahead, but you need to embrace that fight and take that fight to the enemy just like Jesus did. And if you succeed in this battle, in this war, Jesus will say to you, since you overcame like I overcame, you can sit with me on my throne that the Father has given to me. Jesus engages in one final act designed to persuade a lukewarm church to become fervently zealous for him. Let's look at this briefly. Number seven, he urges everyone to hear what he is saying to the churches. He urges everyone to hear what he's saying to the churches. In verse 22, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to whom? To the churches, plural. Jesus here is delivering a call to the Laodiceans to hear what he has said to them in the seventh letter. He's also delivering a call to the members of all of the other six churches of Asia Minor to hear for their own benefit what he has just said to the Laodicean church. And Jesus also wants us today here at Cornerstone to listen to what his spirit is saying through his words to the Laodicean church. According to what Jesus says here in verse 22, the words of our passage today are a part of what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In other words, Jesus' words to this church are not just to this church, but these are words to the church of Ephesus and Sardis and Philadelphia and to Cornerstone. We're reading the church's mail. Keep in mind, this church was one of the seven golden lampstands that Jesus walked among in Revelation 1. This is his church that he pursues. This fact leads Charles Spurgeon to say these words about our text today. 
and I'm inclined to agree with him. Listen to what he says. This text belongs to the church of God, not to the unconverted. It is addressed to the Laodicean church. There is Christ outside the church, driven there by her unkindness. But he has not gone far away. He loves his church too much to leave her altogether. He longs to come back, and therefore he waits at the doorpost. He desires to bless her, and so he stands waiting, knocking, and knocking again and again. And Jesus does the same for you. And for me, whenever we have ever so marginalized his role in our life that he is on the outside looking in. You know, just in closing, guys, all all of us have a natural tendency, I think, to respond toward people the way that they seem to be behaving toward us. If they're lukewarm toward us, well, then we'll be lukewarm toward them, right? If they separate themselves from us, well, then we'll separate ourselves from them. If they have behaved toward us in ways that make them odious to us, well, then we will consider ourselves done with them. We will spew them out of our mouths, and we will be happy to be done with them. But Jesus doesn't do that with us, and he does not do that with these Laodiceans. They have been unfaithful to him, yet he's knocking at their door and still offering himself as a friend to them. They have shoved him to the outside of their life, but he's still knocking on their door because he knows that they need him. They were leaving a foul taste in his mouth, making him want to throw up, but he has thus far refused to vomit them out of his mouth. Instead, he pursues them. He speaks hard truth to them. He rebukes them. He tells them that he loves them. In fact, he literally assures them in this passage that they have not ruined his appetite for a meal. He still unbelievably wants to dine with them. And he makes promises to them, even offering them a seat with him on his throne forever if they overcome their lukewarmness. What amazing grace, what amazing condescension from the glorified Lord. What persistence and what is not to love about a Savior like this? How can we be lukewarm toward one such as this? How can we not love others with the same kind of persistent pursuing love? If you have felt any conviction in your heart this morning as we have worked through this passage, I want you to embrace that conviction, actually to rejoice in it. Realize that the pain you feel in your spirit is Jesus working in your heart through his spirit. Aren't you glad to know he's working in you? It's his reproof and discipline that you're feeling, which are signs that He loves you. The conviction you feel may very well be Him knocking against the door of your life, asking to be let in. Aren't you glad He's knocking? The worst thing that can happen to any of us is that the knocking ceases. 
Be excited about that knock and that conviction and that pain and let Jesus in. Swing wide the door of your life and welcome him in. Repent. And you can, you can begin dining with him right now, immediately. And that's the ultimate cure for lukewarmness, you know. Jesus. Open the door of your life to him each day and learn the art of dining with him as friend with friend. And you will not be lukewarm toward him any longer. Because no one who dines with Jesus is ever lukewarm toward him. Zealous diners with Jesus are always zealous lovers of him. Let's pray and ask God to help to make us zealous diners with Jesus. Lord, we all long for that friend who knows us utterly and who's willing to speak blunt truth to us and yet they love us and never give up on us and all the things that we long for and earthly friendships are all right here in this passage found in Jesus. What a Savior you are. And how can we behold you, Lord, as we watch you in action in this passage pursuing this church and not find you utterly irresistible? Help us, Lord, to know how desperate we are for you how great our need is. And may we run to you and zealously get our needs met by you. And we know, Lord, that we who will be forgiven much and helped much, we're going to love you much. You're a good Savior, and I pray that if there's any here this morning that have never come to you and opened the door of their life to you and welcomed you in, I pray, Lord, that you would bring life to their hearts and enable them to receive you today as their Savior, as their Lord, as their greatest treasure, and as their dearest friend And may they begin dining with you today. And the more we experience your goodness in this way, Lord, the more we should feel a driving passion to speak of you to others and to tell others of this Savior that has found us that they might come to know him too. And I pray that you would empower our witness to proclaim your name and the truth of your love to all who are willing to hear. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for this passage and for this opportunity we've had to gather around you, Lord Jesus, this morning and to gaze upon you. We just say these things to you in the name of Jesus.
And all God's people said,